Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, as today, after approximately 18 months working our way through the Gospel of Mark, today we'll be starting Mark chapter 13, or a section in the Gospel of Mark known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus Christ foretells about the destruction of the temple, offers some signs about the end of the age, and then talks about the abomination of desolation, the coming of the Son of Man, some lessons from the fig tree, and finally then makes the point that no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will come again. So yeah, there's a lot of fun to unpack here, church, within this chapter. And it's a chapter that comes to us following Jesus Christ, having already dealt with all the traps and conflicts and the questions from the Sanhedrin church, and from the Pharisees and the Herodians' church, and the Sadducees and the scribes' church, and following Jesus Christ, even teaching in the temple, specifically about the identity of the Messiah, as we saw back in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, and as Alex so clearly and so profoundly touched on last week, in verses 38 through 44, about religious hypocrisy, and that of sacrificial devotion as well. Nevertheless, after all of that, Jesus Christ then leaves the temple here, which is exactly where we are going to pick up in our text this morning. However, before we do, I'd like to share with you all this morning that this passage of Scripture that we will be looking at over the next three weeks in the Gospel of Mark Again, a passage known as the Olivet Discourse, since Jesus' teaching here, as we will see in the text today, takes place on the Mount of Olives, for it is one of the most challenging portions of Scripture, not only in the Gospel of Mark to interpret and to exegete, but really in all of the New Testament as a whole. And thus, because of that, you get a lot of different interpretations and debates concerning all of the unique details of the text. Different interpretations and debates, mind you, church, from faithful and godly and sincere Christians. One of those interpretations being, in essence, that Jesus Christ is only speaking here about the end of the age and of his second coming. Whereas others believe that Jesus Christ is only speaking here, in essence, about the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the funny thing is, I can certainly see the strengths and the merits and the reasoning and the rationale for each of these two interpretations. Nevertheless, I humbly, 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 church, tend to side with the scholarship out there today that views the Olivet Discourse as one scholar explains it, as an intentional prophetic merging and overlap of two events, with the goal of viewing one as a pattern or as a model for the other, in which the destruction of the temple and the fall of the Jerusalem fall as a prefigurement or paradigm for the parousia, a.k.a. for the return of Jesus Christ. And what all that means in short, church, is that the fall of the temple in 70 AD seems to be foreshadowing or acting as a preview or foretaste, if you will, of sorts, of the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. And thus, with all that in mind, 
Our thesis statement this morning, then, this morning, church, or the main theme of our sermon this morning, is this. Christian, do not be anxious about the end. Just make it your goal to be faithful in the moment, since the one who endures until the end will most assuredly be saved. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. Christian, do not be anxious about the end. Just make it your goal to be faithful in the moment, since the one who endures until the end will most assuredly be saved. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to be reading your very own copy of the Word of God, which you can start today, right here, right now, by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 849, and by joining us as we as a church family Hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Mark chapter 13 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 13, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your 
word, God, it will stand forever. And Father, as we come to this text this morning, first off, I pray that it humbles us, Lord, that we approach this text meekly and humbly. Lord, that you do not allow this text to become a source of division within this dear body. But Lord, we also pray that we submit and are transformed by this text as well, and that we gain much confidence from this text. Lord, that we are to persevere in the midst of any trials and tribulations that may come our way. For we know whether we were born in the first century or whether we were born in the 21st century, that trials and persecution and tribulation will come for the bride of Christ. So, Father, I pray that you give us a boldness this morning, that we stand firm in the midst of those trials. I pray that we be willing to endure, Father, not for just a season, not for just a couple months or a couple years, but we be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ until the very end. And that we do not become sign seekers only at the expense of our faithfulness, Father. But that we be willing to proclaim this gospel truth until Jesus Christ comes again. Father, I pray that you help my lisping and stammering tongue this morning. Father, we can be confident because this is the infallible and inerrant and sufficient word of God that we are hearing this morning. Let us be willing to sit under it, to be transformed by it. And we pray that through all our singing this morning, through all the prayers, our offering, communion that we will take in a little bit, and through the preaching of your word, Father, that you are glorified. Do this wonderful work this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, see to it. That no one leads you astray. See to it that no one leads you astray. Verses 1 through 8, which read, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So after Jesus Christ finished fielding questions... From the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes, all while in the temple church, and even as previously mentioned, taught some in the temple, Jesus Christ then came out of the temple, and as we see in verse 1, one of his disciples then said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
And make no mistake about it, for these truly were some wonderful stones and some wonderful buildings that made up the temple complex at this time. I mean, we are talking about a temple here, church, that had some foundational stones that were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. And a temple complex here, church, with all its courtyards and porticos and massive columns that took up approximately one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. And yet, despite its size and grandeur and magnificence, Jesus Christ, he responds back to his disciple here in verse 2 by saying to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that this massive and grand and beautiful architectural wonder known as the temple, that it would all one day be absolutely destroyed. Which, as I've mentioned in sermons past, did most assuredly come to pass in 70 AD when the Romans came in and absolutely destroyed the temple and that of Jerusalem then as well. Nevertheless, after hearing this astonishing and downright staggering prediction from Jesus Christ about the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, as we go on to see in verse 3, that as Jesus Christ sat On the Mount of Olives now, opposite the temple, in that we have a change of scenery here, church, from the temple complex to the Mount of Olives, which, mind you, church, was about 200 feet higher above the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew, four of Jesus' disciples, they asked Jesus Christ privately, as we see in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And this is where things begin to get a little bit tricky in terms of trying to properly interpret this passage. However, I do think we get some clarity here from Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. And I say that because in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, we see Jesus' disciples ask Jesus Christ with a bit more detail there, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what seems to be the disciples' thought process here is that Jesus' disciples believe that the destruction of the temple, as predicted by Jesus Christ in verse 2, that that type of catastrophe or destruction, that it would go along with the end of the age or that of the eschatological end. And that they were seemingly not thinking here that the temple would be destroyed and that then there would be some long period of time after that until the end of the age but that instead the destruction of the temple would go along with the end of the age. Or as scholar John Grasmick explains it, after Jesus Christ predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples then were prompted to inquire about the timing of these things, apparently associating the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. And thus Jesus Christ skillfully then weaves together in a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. Number one, the near event, that being the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And number two, the far event, that being the coming of the Son of Man in clouds with power and glory. 
the former local event being or serving as a forerunner of the latter universal event. And thus, with all that in mind here, church, Jesus Christ then begins saying to Peter and James and John and Andrew in verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. And what I find just so interesting here, church, is that although Jesus' disciples just asked Jesus Christ about the future or about when the temple would be destroyed and about what then would be the signs of your coming and the end of the age, Jesus Christ, for he begins here, church, with a warning by telling his disciples to watch out for, to take heed of, to see to it, and to be careful that no one deceives you, misleads you, fools you, or leads you astray. Since verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And that Jesus Christ is warning his disciples here that many false messiahs and many false Christ and many messianic imposters are going to come. And they are going to try to swindle you and trick you, misguide you, and ultimately lead you astray. Individuals seemingly like Theodos, who in Acts chapter 5 rose up claiming to be somebody and to a number of men then about 400 joined. Hence why Jesus Christ so clearly and so plainly warns his disciples here to see to it that no one leads you astray since many false messiahs are most certainly going to come. And not only that, but additionally, as Jesus Christ goes on then to say to his disciples in verse 7, that when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not near. And thus in 40 AD, when the Roman emperor at the time, Caligula, ordered to have a statue of himself placed in the temple of Jerusalem, and then fears of war broke out, Jesus' point then to his disciples would be, do not be alarmed by those rumors of wars, since we live in a fallen and sinful and depraved world, and these things, verse 7, they have to take place. But just because they do take place, verse 7, for that does not mean that the end is near. The end here, church, seemingly referring to both the destruction of the temple in 70 AD within the immediate context here, and then from a big picture standpoint to the the end of the age as well. To which Jesus Christ then says in verse 8, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Again, Jesus Christ warning his disciples here that nations are going to war against each other and kingdoms are going to fight against each other and that earthquakes and famines that they both are going to occur. And make no mistake about it for Jesus Christ, for he was absolutely right here, church. And I say that because there were famines during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 A.D. There was an earthquake so big in 63 A.D. that it brought about massive destruction to Pompeii and Rome. Well, they were seemingly always at war, church. And yet Jesus Christ still says to his disciples here in verse 8 that these are but the beginning of the birth pains. In essence, as Daniel Aiken explains, human history is headed toward the birth of a new messianic age and kingdom, 
Of that we can be sure. But before it comes, we can expect times of worldwide trouble and tribulation. Like labor pains of a woman that grow in intensity before the blessed birth of a baby, distress will increase before the glorious end. For this was true, leading up to the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, and it will be especially true as the curtain on world history comes down as well. And thus, in light of that church, and in light of Jesus Christ just warning and admonishing his disciples here to be ready for the distress that is to come, to be prepared for the trials that are to come, and to see to it that absolutely no one leads you astray. For let me also then lovingly encourage each and every one of you here today, church, to stay the course, to run with endurance, to fight the good fight, to be watchful, stand firm, be strong, press on toward the goal, and to let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. Because the fact of the matter is, no matter how you interpret this Discourse, brother Christian, sister Christian, for we still live in a fallen and sinful and depraved world, one in which our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, which means then it does not matter if you were born in the first century or born in the 21st century, because either way, you have got to fight the urge, Christian, to let the catastrophes that take place around you or the trials of life that pound against you or the false teachers who are out there today who are looking to deceive you, to cause you to neglect, to forget, and to reject the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. Because even though distress and strife and tribulation in this life will most assuredly come your way, Christian, for there will also most assuredly be a glorious end to all this when the king Jesus Christ comes again and all things will will be made new. And thus, because of that, always, always, always then, Christian, be willing to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, to press on toward the goal, and to make sure that no one leads you astray from the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two. Be on guard, since the one who endures until the end will be saved. Be on guard, since the one who endures until the end will be saved. Verses 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child... And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus Christ, after initially warning his disciples to not be led astray by false messiahs, 
and to not be alarmed about hearing of wars or about rumors of wars, since they do not mean that the end has come. Jesus Christ then goes on in verse 9 to warn his disciples to be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me, which again most certainly did end up happening to Jesus' disciples. As the Sanhedrin, as we see in Acts chapter 5, ended up calling in the apostles, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in Jesus' name. Whereas the apostle Paul, later on in the book of Acts, had to appear before the Roman governor Felix, the Roman governor Festus, and that of King Agrippa himself. To which Jesus Christ then says in verse 10, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This verse, as Walter Wessel explains, it likely possessing a double reference here. Not only to the gospel being proclaimed during the decades leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, with all the nations referring to the Roman Empire and to its immediate neighbors, but also and ultimately then, to the worldwide proclamation of the gospel prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ as well. Again, since the discourse seems to be simultaneously referring to both the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and to the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus Christ. To which Jesus Christ then encourages encourages his disciples by saying to them in verse 11 that when they bring you to trial... And deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Only to then warn these same disciples in verse 12. By saying to them that brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. In short, the disciples have to be prepared to have their family members, their relatives, and their own flesh and blood betray them, rise up against them, deliver them over to death, and verse 13, be hated by all, Jesus says, for my name's sake. Which certainly should not come as a surprise to us, that Jesus' own disciples would be hated by all. Since as Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. But as Jesus Christ himself also said here in verse 13, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And thus, big picture here, church, or practically speaking here, church, again, as Walter Wessel notes, for testing will be another feature of the last times, and not all will stand the test. But those who stand firm until the end will be saved. This reminds me here, church, of one of the final scenes 
from John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character, named Christian, toward the end of his journey to the celestial city, or to heaven, remembers a man by the name of Temporary, who, as Christian explained it, was at one point in his life very much enthusiastic about religion, and who seemingly was very much spiritually awakened to the point that even Christian believed that at one point in his life he had some real awareness of sin and the wage that was due for his sin. And furthermore, as Christian's traveling companion named Hopeful also shared, that since he did not live more than three miles away from temporary, that temporary would often come to him with many tears. However, as Hopeful then also stated, that not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, proves to be a genuine Christian. To which Christian then finally noted that temporary once made clear to him that he too was determined to go on this pilgrimage and to make it to the celestial city. But then all of a sudden, one day, temporary grew acquainted with the one named Save Self. And ever since then, he became a stranger to me. And thus it is, most assuredly, not the one church who only temporarily endures who will be saved. But instead it was the one who endures until the very end church who will ultimately be saved. And thus because of that, do not then follow the lead of temporary here, church, and allow yourself to backslide, to turn your back on, and to ultimately reject Jesus Christ. But instead, endure, persevere, and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, no matter the trials, the tribulations, and the persecutions that you may face, since the one who endures until the very end, church, in Jesus Christ, will ultimately be saved. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christians, what actually this gospel of Jesus Christ is, that you need to place your faith in and endure in until the very end so that you can truly be saved. And this gospel message, non-Christian, quite frankly, is this, that in love God the Father sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins by initially living for us, non-Christian, the life that we could never live and that the life that Jesus Christ lived while he lived and dwelt among us was a life, non-Christian, that was holy and righteous and just and good and free from any kind of transgression or offense or wickedness or sin. And thus, because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, that was not all that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because Jesus Christ, also then non-Christian, paid the price for our sins that we as sinners 
could not pay. By willingly taking our sins upon himself and by giving up his own life. By being pierced and crucified, killed and crushed on an old rugged cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, satisfied the justice of our holy God. And appeased that non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God, all toward his sinful children as well. And thus because of that, three days later then, this sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, for he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave, but instead three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin. For let today be the day that you turn from your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for you and can clothe you in his perfect life, in his righteousness and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sins and given the gift non-Christian of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of verse 10. Again, which reads, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And what we can take with us, church, from that statement, very practically speaking, as pastor and professor Kim Riddlebarger explains, is that this, of course, is the basis for the church's missionary efforts to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and that the gospel must be preached, both as a means of conversion And as a testimony against those who do not believe. And thus instead of doing what so many Christians do. That being spend all of their time speculating about the end. And what specific signs will tell us when the end will be. Instead Jesus tells us to go and preach the gospel. And what a wonderful takeaway church that is for us today. As we wait for the return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of of the kingdom of God, and that we do not need to get our newspapers out like so many evangelicals do today and begin to obsessively speculate, well, if Russia is doing that, well, then that has to be a sign of the end of the age. Or if Putin's doing that, well, then that has to be a sign of the end of the age. Or if the Democrats are doing this and the Republicans are doing that, well, then that most certainly has to be a sign of the end of the age as well. And to begin to create for ourselves, in essence, church, our own end times roadmap or our own end times checklist or our own end times cookbook that we just need to find all the right ingredients for, all while we obsessively search for signs, speculate about wonders, and theorize about who the Antichrist 
Christ really is. When instead, what we need to be doing, church, in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, is preaching, proclaiming, and sharing the gospel with our neighbors and with our loved ones, church. Our co-workers and with our friends, church. Our acquaintances and with our classmates, church. With our enemies and even with those who are hard to love, church. And thus, lovingly, let me encourage each and every one of you here this morning to be a messenger of the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel, a sharer of the gospel, and to be willing to share that gospel message, church, with people groups from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation throughout this entire world. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body do not be led astray by any kind of false messiahs or false Christ or by anyone out there today who preaches anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that we as a church body, furthermore, continue to endure, persevere, and press on in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. For let us not be a people, Father, who obsess about each and every sign and wonder and how it relates to the end time at the expense of our faithfulness. But instead, let us be grounded, Father, day by day, moment by moment, trial by trial, in steadfast faithfulness to you and only you, and that we be willing to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to endure whatever trials and tribulations that may come our way, all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, since we know that the one who endures a Till the very end, Father, in Jesus Christ, will most assuredly be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we have only been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that we can only continue to endure in the faith by grace alone. We can only persevere in the faith by by grace alone. So, Father, we pray that you continue to pour out your grace on this church body. We know that if you began a good work in us, that you will bring it to completion, for you do not lose any of your children. And, Father, I know that As many trials and tribulations and hardships come upon this church family, Lord, doubt can creep in. So, Father, I pray that you send much grace and encouragement to each one of these dear ones here today. That you strengthen them, that you embolden them, and that you help them to continue to persevere. To not run off to the latest false Christ or the latest false prophet out there today that they not be led astray, that they firmly and boldly submit to your word and endure until the very end of their lives, till they see you again. And Father, that until you come, let us be willing to share that message, that gospel message of Jesus Christ with the world. Give us the grace we need for this endeavor, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.